we want to, um, since we're taking communion today, we want to teach a little bit on uh, uh, the subject of communion and what, what it means to us and how we should approach it. Paul said, uh, well, first of all, we know that everything in the uh, Old Testament is uh, uh, given to us as a type or a shadow, an illustration of something that uh, uh, Jesus fulfilled in his work on the cross, his, his work on the cross, his death, burial, and his resurrection. Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, I believe it is, that um, Jesus is our Passover. Christ is our Passover, sacrificed for us. So let's start back in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 11. And, uh, and set the stage for the, the Passover uh, event and the meaning it has for us as uh, part of the body of Christ. You may remember that um, uh, when God determined to deliver Israel from the bondage of Egypt, which is a type of our deliverance through salvation, escaping the world and the, the sins and the evils thereof, God did brought nine plagues upon Egypt and each one of those in some way some more directly than others but in each one of those plagues it was an attack on the gods of Egypt for example the first uh, plague was when the Nile River turned to blood well the Egyptians worshipped the Nile they said that there was a god of the Nile and they called it uh, the overflowing the flooding that took place every year around the Nile River they called it the blood of the certain God that they worshipped. And so when God turned the water into, uh, into blood, it was showing God's preeminence. It was showing his greatness. It was showing his power over the God of the Nile that they worshipped. They also worshipped the fish God. And one of the results was uh, of the, the Nile River turning to blood was that all the fish in the, in the Nile died. So that was another Example, a display of God's power, showing himself to be greater. This is the, uh, true of just about every one of the plagues. They worshipped the God of the desert. They worshipped the God of the sky. They worshipped gods that, uh, that they made graven images or idols out of that looked like flies, frogs, locusts, and all this kind of stuff. They had gods of the, of the harvest, and that was part of what the, the uh, hail mixed with fire coming down uh, one of the plagues signified, it signified not only their, that God was greater than the God they worshipped concerning the sky, but also the God they worshipped concerning the crops and their well-being. So when finally God gets to the place where the tenth plague takes place, it's the death of the firstborn. And in preparing Israel for that, God gave certain instructions to Moses. He said for Moses to tell Pharaoh certain things, and we'll begin in Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. It said, And the Lord said unto Moses, Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards he will let you go hence. When he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out hence altogether. Now, the story as it unfolds in the scripture was that there were several times when Pharaoh said, I'll let, you, I'll let the people go. But there was always a, um, a condition attached to it that made it untenable for the children of Israel. Um, and as a result, God is saying this final one will be such that he won't want to change his mind. He won't want to renege on his, what he said that he will do. He will thrust you out. He will make you go. 
Speak now in the ears of the people and let every man borrow of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor jewels of silver and jewels of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservants that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue, against man or beast, that you may know how that the Lord does put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these thy servants shall come down unto me, and bow down themselves unto me, saying, Get thee out, and all the people that follow thee, and after that I will go out. Now this is still Moses talking on behalf of God. So God says, after you go, after they send you forth, then I'll go behind you. And he went out from Pharaoh in a great anger. That means uh, Pharaoh didn't take kindly to the threats of Moses. Now he couldn't do anything about him. In the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn is significant in a couple of ways or for a couple of reasons. One was the last judgment that God inflicted upon the gods of Egypt was the belief, the claim, and the practice that Pharaoh was God. So when God says the death of the firstborn will take place in every house in Egypt, it will affect every house. There will not be one house unaffected in all of Egypt. He's going to show himself greater than the greatest of their gods, Pharaoh. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, there's a couple of places where it says the Lord hardened his heart, and there's a couple other places that say Pharaoh hardened his heart. And uh, uh, the wording is uh, a little bit difficult. We'll have to go back to what uh, Dr. Robert Young said about the Hebrew language uh, translating into English. There's a, a permissive verb in the, English, in the uh, Hebrew language that the English doesn't have. And so when they came to this permissive, permissive verb where it's saying literally God will allow these things, not God did them, the translators in most cases translated it into the causative sense, meaning in their eyes God was sovereign and God was able to do anything and everything that he wanted to do in the earth. And so they attached the causative verb when it should have been a permissive verb. Now, the King James especially is, uh, uh, well, the point is relevant concerning the King James translation because the King James translation is the only, of all the many translations there are of Scripture, it's the only transliteration. Now, what that means is the translators in, uh, intended and attempted to translate word for word without any other explanation as much as possible. Now, you'll find that there are certain words that are italicized in the um, King James translation, which means those were words that the translators added to the text to try to help us in their understanding or in our understanding based on their understanding. But there were some things that they were wrong about, talking about the translators. There were things that the translators didn't understand about the will of God and the will of man. 
you know as well as I do that God will not usurp your will or any other man's will. If he did, then he'd just make everybody get saved, whether they wanted to or not. We know that he wants everybody to be saved. The Bible says very specifically that God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, as Paul wrote to Timothy. So we know that God wants everybody to be saved. Well, if God wants everybody to be saved, then why isn't everybody saved? I thought the will of God, as it's been explained in many denominational churches for many hundreds of years, I thought God had all power. And I thought God was able to do anything and everything that he wanted. Well, if we find something that the Bible says specifically, which we did, that God wants, then how can it not come to pass? And the reality is, God leaves that up to you and me to choose. Man's free will and choice never is overcome or usurped by God, even though we sometimes stand in his way of bringing out bring to us the fullness of his blessings. So here where it says Pharaoh hardened, or God hardened Pharaoh's heart in this case, there are other instances where it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Well, that would be more in line with what's going on. But we have to realize also that God sees the future better than we know the past. He knows what's coming. He knows what Pharaoh is going to do. He knows Pharaoh's ego and his attitude. And you've got to realize, if Pharaoh had let the children of Israel go easily, then it's a bad move for him in the eyes of the people. Because Israel is slaves to the Egyptians. And who's going to do the slave labor if he lets these people go? So it creates a real political issue, a real leadership issue, a governmental issue for him. And so he relented, or he uh, reneged, I should say, on his agreement several times in several instances to let the people of Israel go. But this last one is going to be so severe that he will thrust them out according to the word of God. Now, did you notice there what it says? There'll be a great cry in Egypt such as never been heard before, but a dog shall not wag his tongue against Israel. What that means is God is showing the difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites in, in and during and surrounding this plague. There will be quiet and peace and calm among Israel. And all the houses or tents or wherever the Israelites are living. As opposed to or in comparison to the great cry that will take place from Pharaoh's house, Pharaoh's palace, all the way down to the least of the Israelites. So in chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Notice that phrase, the beginning of months. God is simply saying, I'm changing the calendar for you so that this event, which we know of as the Passover, which Israel knew of as the Passover, this event will signify the beginning of the year for you. Now, it's April for us. But it began the Jewish calendar. Everything changes. Everything changes according to their calendar and the rituals and all the things that God commands them to do and to keep, these things change or become established because it's the event that signifies coming out of the world into the family of God, heading toward the promised land. In other words, the Jewish calendar in itself signifies 
that life begins with deliverance. We know that to be true as far as uh, spiritual life, eternal life is concerned. It's when we're delivered from the bondage of Egypt that things really start for us. Well, that's what this signifies when it said that God made this the beginning of their months or the beginning of their yearly calendar. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. In other words, God didn't want anything left over. God doesn't want anything left over of your salvation or mine either. He doesn't want anything left over, meaning he doesn't want anything that Jesus paid the price for on the cross by shedding his blood and offering himself as our sacrifice. He doesn't want any part of what God delivered us from or the the blood of Jesus delivered us from. He wants us to partake of each and every bit of it. Take hold of everything that Jesus did and the value thereof. Leave nothing unused. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Now this signifies something else. Notice even in the first Passover, God's giving instructions for what to do from this point on regarding the remembrance or the keeping of this Passover feast or Passover meal. Now, the only way that they could produce or provide for the sacrifice, lambs without blemish, is that they had to take care of them in a very special way. These can't be lambs that just come and go out in the fields anytime and every time they want. These are going to have to be some uh, animals that are kept up kind of raised in the house, so to speak. You know, there's some dogs that stay outside. There are some dogs that stay inside. Well, what happens to the dogs that stay inside? They rule the house. (laughs) They become part of the family. Now, think of it like this. In order to provide lambs without without spot and blemish, if they have to provide some kind of special care or attention to them to make sure that they have a lamb that's worthy for the sacrifice... That means year after year after year after year after year, these people, the Israelites, are going to have to offer pets to God for themselves. I'm sure there's a lot of kids that cried when Passover time came along because Fluffy had to die. God made extreme plans and gave us specific directions for how these things were supposed to be. So the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening, and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper doorposts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. Eat not of it raw nor sodden at all with water. That means boiled in water. But roast with fire his head and his legs with the pertinence thereof. Now, the puritanism in, uh, includes or refers to the innards, the innards of the, uh, the lamb. It's talking about the intestines. It's talking about the things that come from the center of the being. 
Now, that's not all edible. And I'm not sure they ever, uh, Israel ever tried to eat everything of it. But the inference is the whole thing is offered as a sacrifice. Roast with fire, which is a purification method. And in, then anything that's left over until morning has to be burned or consumed with fire. And you shall let nothing of it remain unto the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, folks, I want you to understand something about this. He's saying, eat the Passover meal ready to go. Well, we understood why that would be the case with them, the original Passover event. Because they're going to be leaving Egypt and going toward the promised land. Again, it's a type of salvation for us, for those whom Jesus paid the price for and that receive what he has done for us individually. But the significance in the principle is the same. The Passover and all that it signifies is intended to be a a starting point for us to move forward into what God has for us. They're moving forward toward the promised land. Well, we know the promised land since the deliverance of Israel from Egypt signified salvation. And the crossing of the Red Sea signified crossing over from death, spiritual death, unto eternal life. The promised land signifies all that Jesus provided for us. The baptism of the Holy Ghost. The blessing of healing, provision. And all the things that God provided for us through his son Jesus That's what we're to be pursuing and moving toward, moving forward to. So he said, this is the Lord's Passover. Be ready to go, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. You see that phrase, against all the gods of Egypt? That goes back to the things that God has been showing himself to be greater than all the gods of Egypt that God is that uh, God is showing himself to be superior to he says this is the final thing and again the last plague showed that Pharaoh was not God no matter what claims of deity the Egyptians had on Pharaoh's position and that Pharaoh and the Pharaohs throughout the years had tried to convince the people of everybody knows after this one that God is God. The God of Moses, the God of Israel, he's the true God. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be kept unto you for a memorial. And you shall keep it as a feast unto the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by ordinance forever seven days shall you eat unleavened bread even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses for whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day that soul shall be cut off from Israel this signifies the purification just as the purification of the houses was instructed it's talking about the purification of you and me and in the first day there shall be a holy convocation in the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation to you 
No manner of work shall be done in them save or except that which every man must eat and that only may be done of you. And it goes on and tells us more about what um, the instructions concerning the Passover had to do with and, and um, all the details of what they were supposed to keep. Now, when it says Jesus was our Passover, sacrifice for us, it means that Jesus is offering himself as a sacrifice, his blood and his body, which were both the key elements in the Passover sacrifice. See, if it was just about the blood, then there would have been no instruction from God to eat the meat that was roast with fire. But the meat was for the strength of their journey going forward and moving forward from Egypt to the promised land. In the same way, the Bible gives us instruction that just as Jesus fulfilled it as our Passover, fulfilled all these requirements and rules as our Passover, it's saying not just the blood of Jesus is beneficial or necessary for us, but that Jesus offering his body had an important part of this as well. It was an important part. It's not just the blood of Jesus. Thank God for the blood. But the body of the Lord is important too. Well, the Bible tells us that these things came off just as they were supposed to. Israel offered the Passover lamb and the doors were shut. They were commanded not to go outside in any way whatsoever. And depending on the proximity to um, the Egyptians, they heard cries beginning about midnight and sorrows, weeping and wailing, terrible noises with parents losing their firstborn children. And that doesn't mean just little kids either. The firstborn would die no matter what the age was. And just as God said, there was a cry throughout Egypt that nothing was ever like it again. And if the, uh, the Egyptians lived close to where the Israelites did, or at least some of them, they would be witness to the agony and the anguish that sent forth by the cries of Egypt. But if they applied the blood in the proper and correct manner, they were saved. Now, folks, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, beginning with Adam and Eve's transgression in the Garden of Eden. Something had to die to pay for sin. Something had to die. And so Israel, throughout the years, each and every year, several times a year, operated according to the ritual sacrifices that God had commanded because the price for sin had to be paid if we were going to have access to God. In order for any man to have access to God, he must in some way apply the blood of the sacrifice that was made for him. Well, for us, for Israel, it was these Passover lambs as well as the Day of Atonement, bulls and sheep and goats and so forth. But for us, Jesus is our Passover sacrifice for you and me. We can only come through the blood of Jesus. We can only come to the Father through the blood of Jesus. Now, we read on there how that uh, Israel borrowed. The King James says borrowed. The word borrowed there literally means demand. It doesn't have to mean with a bad attitude or strong arm somebody, but it does uh, infer, and the word does mean that they took a position of something that was owed to them for the 400 years of slavery 
and the service provided through those 400 years from Israel to Egypt. So they borrowed of their neighbors precious things, and the Bible tells us that they have spoiled the Egyptians. In other words, Egypt, the Egyptian people, even before the death of the firstborn, even before the last plague, the people of Egypt recognized that Israel's God really meant business about letting them go. So they were willing to give them everything they had. Here, take this. Here, take that. Just get out of here and leave us alone. Maybe when you leave, these plagues can stop. And so Psalm 105 says that God brought them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble among them. Now that's an interesting comment or commentary on the Passover experience because the night after the death of the firstborn, first thing, first light, Pharaoh called for Moses and said, get out of here, just like God said that he would do. And he was insistent that they go in a hurry. He wanted them gone, and he wanted them gone instantly. And they had been preparing for this by the word of the Lord and by the instruction that God gave them. So here where it says that the people of Israel, and the, the numbers are uh, estimated between anywhere between 2 million and 7 million people making up the, the nation of Israel at that time. If we just start with the low number, 2 million, how do you get 2 million people that there's nobody sick or tired or feeble or weak? You got a lot of old people here. You got a lot of young people here. The children of Israel had multiplied to the point where if they had tried to or attempted to take over Egypt by force, that was a real consideration for the Pharaoh. That was one reason why he tried to be so uh, strong and tough and abusive to them, trying to stamp down their idea or the idea that maybe they might be able to revolt based on their number. But if we go for the small number, the most conservative number or estimate of 2 million, how is it that there's no feeble among them? The Bible says God brought them forth with silver and gold and there was not one feeble among them. That means there's nobody sick. That means there's nobody infirmed in any way whatsoever. That means even the old people aren't weak. How did that take place? Or when did that take place? Is that the natural condition of slavery? Well, if so, it'd be the first time in the history of the world. Nobody expects slaves to be healthy, at least not for long, because of the ill treatment they receive at the hands of their owners. But God brought these people out with silver and gold. Apparently silver and gold was important enough for God to provide for them. But what's he providing it for? They're not stopping by Walmart or Costco on the way out. They're going into the wilderness. They're going into promised land. They have no immediate need for silver and gold unless they're going to trade back and forth among themselves. So where's the need for silver and gold? Folks, God's attitude is that the wealth of the wicked, the wealth of the world is laid up for the just. God didn't create the wealth of the world for Satan and his crowd. He created everything that's here 
And his word says the earth is his and the fullness thereof. And everything that is here, every wealth, every resource, everything that God created in the earth that's of value is here for his, his man, in our case meaning his family. Now in Exodus chapter 15, after it tells us, and we skip forward a little bit, how that Pharaoh chased them out. They come to the Red Sea. Pharaoh changes his mind and says, what am I letting these people go for? They're responsible for the death of my child as well as all the other firstborn of Egypt. So he comes for the purpose of attacking them. You remember the story how that Israel sees Pharaoh's armies bearing down on them. And God puts a pillar of fire between Pharaoh's armies and Israel, the children of Israel. They start complaining to Moses about what are we going to do? This is a terrible place to die. And Moses says, calm down. Everything's going to be all right. Then Moses turns to God and says, what do I do? And he says, what are you asking me for? Which seems to me to be a perfect time to ask him. But he's trying to show Moses that because he, Moses, is operating on behalf of God, there's nothing that's impossible. Whatever they need, God will make available. So he tells Moses, stretch forth your rod over the Red Sea and watch it depart, watch it uh, separate, divide. So they did. He did. And Israel went across on dry ground. And just as Israel had cleared the thing and got onto the other side, the pillar of fire lifts. And Pharaoh orders his armies to chase after Israel. Well, they go into the Red Sea, still parted, still divided. They go into the Red Sea by the same path that Israel went. And it tells us that the chariots got bogged down in the mud. The waters came back together and destroyed the strongest, most powerful army on the face of the earth at that time. Well, Moses starts singing a song of deliverance along with the rest of Israel. Chapter 15 tells us about that song. And so they began on their journey toward the promised land. And within just a very short period of time, they come to a place where they couldn't drink the water. The water was bitter. And it says in Exodus chapter 15, verse 24, and the people murmured against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree. This is a, a symbol or an illustration of the cross that Jesus died on. He cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Here's an example, an Old Testament example of what Jesus fulfilled for us in salvation through his blood. And there he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them and said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments... And keep all of his statutes. I will put none of these diseases upon thee. Which I have brought upon the Egyptians. For I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now you see that word healeth? That word is translated healed in many other places in the Old Testament. And the point is, for example in uh, uh, Psalm 107 verse 20. It says God sent his word and healed them. Same word. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, it says Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Same word, healed. 
it uses this word many, many, many times in the Old Testament. Where in most cases it's translated past tense, healed. In this case, it's translated present perfect, I think, if I remember my English correctly. To mean not only past events, but future events too. And I I think that's appropriate. I know it is. Because God is saying, I'm the God that will always provide healing power for you. But it's also possible. You can't really prove it either way. But it's also very possible that the people were healed through the Passover lamb. The consuming or the eating of the Passover lamb. And that's what made the scripture true. When it says God brought them forth with silver and gold and there was not one feeble among them. It's very possible in my thinking likely. But it's very possible that through the Passover experience, the eating of the Passover lamb, those that were sick among the nation of Israel were healed. Those that were weak were strengthened. Now some people would look at that and say, well, Pastor Mike, that's a stretch. Is it? Turn with me over to Second Chronicles chapter 30, I believe it is. Second Chronicles chapter 30, it tells us that Hezekiah is now king of Israel, Judah specifically. And Hezekiah asks for the scrolls. He's, he can't sleep one night, so he asks for somebody to bring him the Old Testament scrolls. And they start reading in there, or, or somebody's reading it to Hezekiah. And they read through about the Passover. And Hezekiah says, this is hundreds of years after it was instituted. Hezekiah says, why don't we keep the Passover anymore? And so he digs a little bit deeper and goes into, gets a little bit more research and information about it. And then finally he says, he calls to all of Israel and Judah. He says, we need to keep the Passover. It's something that our fathers did, and we got out of the habit of doing. But we need to reinstitute this thing. Well, there's a problem immediately as far as the calendar is concerned because it's not the right month to do it. It was the second month of the year, not the first. And whereas the the, um, Passover was supposed to be kept on the 14th of the first month, now it's the second month. But Hezekiah goes through with it anyway. He invites everybody. There's a, a significant response to his invitation. And Israel keeps the Passover. Wrong time. Didn't even keep all the details like he's supposed to. But notice what it says in Second Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 20. It says, And the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah. This is the prayer that he prayed concerning the Passover, even though he did it at the wrong time. And the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Same word. God healed the people. So several hundred years, I'm trying to say between six and seven hundred years, but I'm not sure that's, that's accurate. That may be faulty memory at work. I'm not sure, but it's hundreds of years after the Passover was instituted. When Hezekiah, on behalf of Israel, the people of Israel, when he reinstitutes the Passover ritual and sacrifice, healing power comes to the nation of Israel. It says the Lord healed the people. So what I want you to see is that that the Passover was not just about the celebration of the blood that was shed, the sacrifice that saved us 
from spiritual death, delivered us from the hand of the enemy. It's also a ritual that was by design instituted by God as an ordinance. Now, an ordinance means it'll always work this way. It's a spiritual principle. It'll always work this way. Keep the requirements, keep the conditions, and it will always work this way. When it says God uh, made for them a statute and an ordinance, the statute and ordinance is if you'll keep the word. Well, that's what Hezekiah did. As much as he was able to, being limited by the calendar, the ordinance was if you keep the word of God and do what he said to do, then God is the healer. I am the God that healeth thee. And it was proven through the nation of Israel again in Hezekiah's day. So when it says God brought them forth with silver and gold, talking about Israel, brought them out of Egypt with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble among them. Here in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, God's saying, by the way, I'm the one that brought the healing power to you. And I always will if you keep my commandments. So the Passover had a lot to do with not just spiritual deliverance, but deliverance for the body as well. Now turn with me over to John chapter 6. John gives us an account that the other disciples or gospel writers do not. And the things that he specifically tells us about, in my mind, carry, uh, well, I'm not sure if it's accurate or, or appropriate to say it carries greater weight, but it sure gathers my attention a lot more than, than the stories that the other three gospel writers gave. And one of the things that John gives us, information that he gives us, is the problem that Jesus identifying with the Passover lamb created. In John chapter 6, I don't want to read the whole thing. I don't want to read the whole chapter. So let's start in verse 35. He starts telling them that he is the bread of life. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. They're thinking about manna from the wilderness. Jesus says, the bread that I offer is even greater than that. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and in him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me I should lose nothing or no one, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So notice the ones that God has given him are the ones that accept that Jesus is the Messiah. Then the Jews murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Joseph, the son of Joseph, whom father and mother, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he said, I came down from heaven? Now, this is a recurring theme among the Jews, uh, not just the religious leaders, but the Jewish people as a whole. Because all the Jews knew that the Messiah would not have a natural mother and father. 
They know that the prophecy was that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And so time and time and time again, the Bible tells us on several occasions that when Jesus appeared to do the work of God, people that knew of him, knew of his upbringing, lived in the same town that he lived in, as the case was in Nazareth, that they would not believe him because they thought they knew his mother and father. So when Jesus makes statements about, I am the bread of life, I am the one, the Christ, the one that's anointed to heal the sick and cast out devils and so forth, they rejected that because of what they thought his parentage was. So apparently Mary didn't go around saying, oh, by the way, I'm the virgin that gave birth to the Messiah. She certainly didn't or wouldn't have done that before she married Joseph. And remember, Joseph was even willing and planning to put her away privately. He was going to handle it with some kind of dignity so she could maintain her respect. But this was a big, 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 big deal for Mary to be pregnant and it not to be Joseph's. And so Joseph had to have a vision from the Lord saying, hey, by the way, this is of me. That story she told you about the Holy Ghost overshadowing her, I'm sure it sounded to Joseph at first like, yeah, right. But Joseph saw a vision or had a dream where the Lord said, she's telling you the truth. This is of me. But the people, looking according to what they thought they knew, and folks, this, I think this is a principle that, that affects all of us to a great, great, great degree. There's a lot of things we think we know. Where we find out somewhere down the road, we didn't know what we thought we knew. Or we didn't get it right. And a lot of the things that the Bible tells us that God makes available to us, a lot of the preaching we do about the things that are available, many people reject them because of what they think they know. What you think you know can be a killer when it comes to the things of God. Because what we think we know is mostly natural man stuff. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians saying the natural man cannot receive, not only does not receive, but cannot receive the things of God. For they are foolishness unto him. We need to be careful about what we think we know. Jesus said to the Pharisees that their traditions made the word of God of none effect. One translation says their reasonings stripped the word of God of power. Well, folks, the, the word of God is the most powerful thing in the universe. The Bible says everything about the universe, everything we see and know of the universe, was created by the word of God, which means the word's greater than the universe. The Bible tells us that everything that continues on, all the laws of nature, laws of physics, every physical law is upheld or continued or, or things stay in place literally because of the word of God's power. That, means, that makes the power of God more powerful than anything. Well, if the word of God is that powerful, how come it doesn't work for so many people? Most of the times, it's because of what we think we know instead of what's true. Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. 
Now, how does God draw us to Jesus? Through conviction. Through an inner voice, an an inward witness. Something that says on the inside of us, this is true even if you can't figure out. This is true even if you can't explain it. This is true because it's God's word. That's how he draws each and every one of us. And leaves it up to us to make the decision. He's already provided salvation for everybody. In that sense, the whole world is saved. As far as the work of God is concerned, or the shedding of Jesus' blood, it was shed for every human being on the planet. So salvation has been obtained for every person. But it'll only be yours personally if you take hold of it for yourself. Do you realize, folks, that hell is populated and eventually, when things are done, when this earth is put away and the new heaven and the new earth are brought into being, everybody that will populate hell, everybody that has populated hell, has had the price paid for them. And that's the good news. That's the gospel. Jesus paid the price. Well, some would say, well, if Jesus paid the price, then I don't have to do anything about it. God's already made it the way that it is. Those people are going to have an especially hard time in hell. Because they'll see the fallacy of their argument for all of eternity as they suffer. Jesus said, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that has heard and has learned of the Father comes unto me. Not that any man has seen the Father, save or except he which is of God. He has seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. He's talking about eternal life. He's not talking about physical death or physical life. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're thinking cannibalism, folks. That's how blinded to what Jesus is saying they are. And nobody's asking, wait a minute, can you explain how that works? They just hear something they don't agree with and become entrenched in their position. Then Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now what he's talking about is partaking of the sacrifice that he will be making on the cross and through his death, burial, and resurrection. He's talking about partaking of that which was offered. Well, what was offered? We know his blood was offered, but his body was too. He fulfilled both types, both parts of the Passover. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about receiving them, receiving him. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed. And my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. 
as the living Father has sent me, and as I live by the Father, so it, he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. Again, he's talking about the sacrifice that he'll make on the cross. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can bear it? Notice what happens, and I think this is the real reason that John gives us this account where the others don't. First of all, he was an eyewitness to this. And if anybody on the face of the earth knew the gaps that were left by the first three Gospels, it was, it was John. John wrote his Gospel some 60 years after, between 60 and 65 years after Jesus was crucified, and most historians, theologians and such, agree that the first gospel account was written some 10 years after Jesus died. So that would mean there's been 50 plus years for John to see, beginning with the first gospel account, what he might have added being an eyewitness and one of the closest followers of Jesus. That, for that reason, the book of John, the gospel of John, is very significant to our understanding. And he's the one that tells us about this. He tells us that this was a saying that didn't go away. It wasn't just one sermon, and the people that were there decided what they thought about it, and then they moved on. No, it begins to be talked everywhere. It begins to be discussed. Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Are you going to stick with him or not? We were okay with everything, the healings and the miracles and all that stuff were great. But man, he's talking about stuff that's contrary to the law of Moses. The law of Moses strictly forbid any kind of drinking of blood in, on any level whatsoever. So if Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, first of all, how in the world is that possible for him to offer it to everybody? But secondly, are you going to follow a guy that's talking about things that we know are contrary to the law of Moses? And again, they didn't realize that Jesus was speaking symbolically or speaking about the fulfilling of his work on the cross. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard it, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that the disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, does this offend you? What, and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up to where he was before? I like what Jesus does here. Jesus said, will it change your mind if you see me lifted up into heaven? Now, for me, if I was one of the disciples at that time, I'd be thinking, yeah, that'd probably do it for me, yeah. I can overlook the flesh and the blood part, seeing you being caught up in heaven, because we know who's in heaven. If you're caught up, we know where you're going. So Jesus says, does this offend you? What, and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up to where he was before? It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from, that, from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, therefore said unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. Again, it's a decision based on the convicting work of the Holy Ghost. Now notice something here, folks. Jesus knows that this creates controversy. Jesus knows that these are, are hard sayings for people to accept 
as they were conditioned by the law of Moses. In other words, what I'm trying to get to is that if they're going to accept it, they're going to have to set aside, not disbelieve, not turn away from, but they're going to have to set aside some of their thinking about the Old Testament law of Moses. They're going to have to set that on the shelf and say, well, I don't understand everything, but I know who he is. And a lot of people weren't willing to do that. That's one reason I believe that the signs and the wonders and the miracles in Jesus' ministry were of such importance. Because even Nicodemus, part of the religious leadership, the Pharisees and such, even Nicodemus said, we know that you can't, nobody can do this kind of stuff unless God's with them. So if that's typical of the understanding of the people in Jesus' day when he was here on the earth, whatever they might not have agreed with or didn't understand about what he said, they knew the power of God was upon him. Thus the dilemma for many. Jesus said, Therefore I said unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given him of the Father, Verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Can you imagine the sadness and the sorrow of those that left him when they come to realize who he really is? Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will you also go away? Please, folks, understand, Jesus' doctrine, the doctrine of truth that he's just told them, even though he knows they don't understand, even though that he knows there may be no way for them to understand, he doesn't try to sugarcoat it. He just says, what's your decision? What's your decision? Are you going to go away too? Jesus was willing to, let, to lose everybody that he had with him. Because of the truth of the doctrine he preached. We fall all over ourselves nowadays in this modern day church, particularly the Western church, the American church. We fall all over ourselves trying to say things in such a way that don't offend people. You know what Jesus taught us? Jesus taught us that the opportunity to be offended is a good thing sometimes. It separates the true believers from everybody else. So Jesus says to the disciples, will you also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? This sounds to me like he's saying, well, if we had anywhere to go, we might consider it, but we're kind of stuck. <laughs> We've already given up our fishing business. We can't go back home. Where would we go? So that's who Jesus is left with at the end. The ones that say, well, where would we go? We might want to go just as much as the people that have already left, but where would we go? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now that, that helps it a little bit right there. Know where we might go will provide us the words of eternal life like you do. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then Jesus talks about one of the twelve betraying him. Of course, he's referring to Judas. 
What's Jesus doing? He's showing us how he is the fulfillment of the Passover sacrifice. He's showing us just as they kept the Passover sacrifice, killed the the lamb, shed the lamb's blood, applied the blood to their house, which I believe has a significance for us as far as our children are concerned, our household is concerned. But your body itself is the house of God. It's talking about making it personal. So when they drank the wine and ate of the roasted lamb, Jesus is saying, my death, my burial, my resurrection will fulfill the old covenant sacrifice or Passover. Now, folks, turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll wrap this up with this. Paul is trying to correct some things in the Corinthian church, and there was a lot to correct. Let's begin in verse 18. Paul said, for first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. I'm running out of time, so I don't want to take a long time on this, but let me just throw in a a sideline here on on this uh, verse. Notice that Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost that heresies are important because it shows who believes what. It shows who are the true believers as opposed to those who are just around as long as it's comfortable. Now, is that not exactly the same thing that we just read in John chapter 6? We get all upset. We think we're so doctrinally accurate and pure. And we hear things that don't line up with our doctrine, and we get all upset, and we want to purge it from the church. And God's not so concerned about stuff like that. Proverbs says that wisdom is justified of her children. You know what that means? That means time shows what's right. Time shows up what's really real. Wisdom manifests through its children, through its offspring. So we don't have to get all hot and bothered about fixing things right away. That's one reason why I really don't spend a whole lot of time around certain groups of of ministers. Because everybody wants to sit around and talk about this heady stuff. And this doctrine and that doctrine and this little twist on that or this little tweak on the other. And they get so caught up on things that are wrong in their estimation. Now there's a lot of things that are being uh, preached in the church. Even in our kind of churches. That I know aren't right. I don't like the way some people preach things. You can preach things. Well, Paul said it this way. He says, some preach Christ out of contention, supposing that it adds to my afflictions. So here's Paul writing by the Holy Ghost saying, some people are preaching with the wrong motive, trying to make things harder on me. You know what he concluded with? He said, I'm just glad Jesus is being preached. 
even if somebody's preaching for the wrong reason. Now, why would the most doctrinal guy that we have record of in the church? Peter sure wasn't a doctrine guy. Paul was the doctrine guy. Why would the guy that to whom was revealed more about church doctrine and church foundational truths than anybody else we have record of? Why wouldn't he be on the war path trying to correct anything and every little thing? Because he knows time would show things up. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure Paul had to grow in this stuff just like the rest of us. And when we're younger, we want to make sure that everything is just right, has to be just right. Somebody has to be saying the right thing in just the right way and all that kind of stuff. But as we get a little bit older, it's kind of like, eh, God will take care of his own. When you come together, verse 20, when you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Apparently, the, the Corinthian church was having feasts and calling them all the Lord's Supper. And Paul said, that's not how it works. For in eating, everyone takes before another his own supper and is hungry and another is drunken. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise you the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. The Corinthian church is claiming to be the place. Now, they've got all the manifestations of the Spirit in operation. As Paul said, you come behind in no good gift. They have tongues and interpretation in operation in their services to such a degree that it's creating a problem, which Paul tries to correct and address. But Paul's at the place where he says to them, when you try to do it every time you come together, it loses its importance. It loses its sacredness. And you're not looking out for each other when you come to these feasts that you're calling the Lord's Supper. You should be concerned about the other person, that everybody gets to participate and recognize and take advantage of the, the significance of these elements, the bread and the wine. For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament or covenant in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you do eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Now notice something about this, folks. Notice that this was important enough, and, and Paul knew about the Gospels too. I mean, he was around when these things were written. The only books of the New Testament that had not been written, or the letters written, had not been written by the time Paul died, were the letters from John and the Revelation. Everything else had been completed by the end of Paul's life, Peter died at about the same time. Peter was crucified, but he requested to be crucified upside down. He didn't feel like he was worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. Paul was beheaded. And so everything had already been written by about 64 or 65 A.D., except the letters from John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. So he knew what was in the Gospels. He knew the gospel accounts 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give some account and refer back to the Passover meal, which we know of as the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. So why would Paul have to have direction or vision or information from the Lord about the last supper or what he calls the Lord's supper? May I at least suggest to you that if it wasn't important, Jesus wouldn't have revealed it to him. He would have just left it for Paul to get the information like so many of the others do, so many of us do. And that is just take what the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke accounts of it are and go from there. Paul said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Now comes the information that I believe is the purpose for the revelation that he received about it from Jesus himself. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Notice that word unworthily. Notice it's not unworthy. See, the blood of Jesus makes us worthy. But even though we've been saved and made worthy by the blood of Jesus, even though it's his blood that provided us the means to become the righteousness of God in him, notice he says we can still behave in such a way that is in an unworthy manner. Doesn't have anything to do with our, our nature. Our nature is dictated by the blood of Jesus and our receiving thereof. But our behavior and our attitudes toward the things of God are up to us. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, again, it's not unworthy. If you're saved, you've been made worthy. But the wrong attitude can be an unworthy attitude. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. He's not talking about being damned to hell. He's talking about condemnation because we're not following the word or obeying the word. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh condemnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now here he identifies what the unworthy attitude would be. Here's what he's talking about unworthily meaning. Not discerning. The word discern means to understand, to see or understand. Not discerning the Lord's body. Notice he didn't say anything about the blood. Not discerning the Lord's body. Now remember Jesus is our Passover sacrifice for us. The Lord's Supper, the, the Passover feast that he's talking about here is what Jesus fulfilled for us by the shedding of his blood, but also the offering of his body. Now, there's two ways you can identify or relate to the phrase, the Lord's body. One is, remember that we are the body of the Lord. You are the house of God, the temple of the Holy Ghost. So the Lord's body is you specifically, your physical body. Your physical body is inhabited by your spirit. Your spirit is inhabited by the Holy Spirit when we're born again. So not discerning the Lord's body would have to do with an attitude or thought or reasonings that we have about our own bodies relative to the Lord's work. But then the Bible also tells us that we, the body of Christ at large, the, the church at large, are the body of Christ. So he's saying an, early, an unworthy manner to receive the Lord's Supper would include either our attitude about what Jesus did for us individually, physically, or what is going on with the church body, our family. 
So he says, if we have the wrong attitude about the benefit of the Passover for us or for our brothers and sisters, then that brings condemnation. Now, let's talk about the body of, the body of Christ at large. What would an unworthy manner be toward our brothers and sisters? Well, if we're not walking in love. Love is the only commandment of the new covenant. So if we're not walking in love toward our brothers and sisters, which they weren't, because they weren't making sure everybody had something and was included, some were eating and drinking so much that they were getting drunk and getting full and other people had nothing. And they were trying to call that the Lord's Supper, and that's what Paul says, that ain't the Lord's Supper. If it was the Lord's Supper, you'd be concerned about other people if you had the right attitude. So if he's talking about not, not discerning the Lord's body at large, the church at large, he'd have to be talking about walking in love. So what's the other side of it? If he's talking about us not having the right attitude toward our own selves, our own physical bodies, he's saying that, we don't, that there are people and an unworthy manner or an unworthy attitude would be for people to think that it's just the blood that Jesus shed and not the offering of his body for our physical healing too. So he's saying if you don't recognize that healing is for the physical, physical healing is for the body through the Lord's Supper, that's an unworthy manner, an unworthy attitude. Because Jesus paid the price for our physical well-being. Let me see if I can say it this way. Or maybe I should ask the question. What would you think Jesus' attitude would be? If the Bible is true, thank God it is. If the Bible is true that says that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions, sins, and bruised for our iniquities, sins, original sin and personal sin, the chastisement of our peace, our prosperity, our well-being, our physical and material well-being, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. That means he paid the price for poverty along with sin. And then the last phrase of Isaiah 53, 5 says, and with his stripes we are healed. This word healed always refers to physical healing. It refers to what God identified himself to be as in uh, Exodus 15, 26. I am the Lord that healeth thee. If Jesus paid the price for our physical well-being, our material well-being, as well as the price for sin, at one and the same time, how important would you think it to be to him that we take advantage of everything he paid for? To ask it another way, is God okay with us denying healing as part of the work that he did? I can't see how he would be. He paid a terrible price for it. That's the unworthy attitude that Paul is talking about. Now let's see what it brings, what result it brings. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh condemnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Verse 30, for this cause, because they're not, they don't have the right attitude of the body of the Lord being offered for our physical well-being. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Other translations say many have died prematurely. See, folks, what we appropriate, the meaning of the blood and the, and the bread that Jesus paid the price for, the symbolism of that. If we refuse or, or fail to, sometimes people do it through ignorance, sometimes people do it on purpose. 
But if we fail to recognize all the things that Jesus paid for by being our Passover sacrifice and fulfilling everything that the sacrifice did, just as in the Old Testament it brought healing to the people when they received and kept the Passover, in the same way, he can bring healing for us. And Paul specifically singles that out as a reason why many people have continuous infirmities and sicknesses and weaknesses in their life as well as many people dying prematurely. You know, it's an amazing thing, and I'm, I'm sure this is a generalized statement, but you take it for whatever you think it's worth. It's an amazing thing how many people fail through a lack of knowledge about the Word, fail to recognize that where you go to church has a lot to do with how long you live. For this reason, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, he's talking about judging our attitudes. If we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. The principle here is, and Paul has already identified this principle in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where he talks about the guy that's living with his stepmother in open sin. He turned him over to Satan. He said, I've already judged in this situation. I've turned him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. That same principle is carrying over here. He's saying you can continue in the wrong attitudes and the wrong behavior to the point where it can cost you your salvation. Here he says, the condemnation or the results, specifically in their case, weakness and infirmities, weak and sickly as he refers to it in the King James. That was designed to show them the error of their ways. Because folks, if you've ever had any sickness to stand against for any long period of time, you know as well as I do that symptoms of sickness and disease will cause you, push you to finding out what the truth is about healing. People that couldn't give two hoots about church when they find out that they're sick or start experiencing sickness or have some diagnosis of sickness and hear that a church believes in healing, they want to know about it. Well, it's the devil doing the work in the bodies. It's the devil bringing sickness and disease. But God's answer of healing will certainly bring people around if they'll choose to accept it. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. You may be surprised to hear this, but this is the only thing that the Bible identifies in the New Testament of why people die prematurely, of why people die before they live out the length of days. Well, it stands to reason if we believed in healing and made it an active part of our lives and our confession, we're going to live longer. Amen. For this cause. Many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. 
But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. How does God chasten us? The word chasten is oftentimes thought of, not translated this way very much, but always thought of by people to be punishment. But the word chasten just means instruction. It means discipline. How does God discipline us? Well, he doesn't do it through sickness and disease. He doesn't do it through adversities or circumstances. How does the Bible say God instructs us or chastens us? 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says he does it through his word. He sent his word and healed them. Psalm 138 verse 2 says God has exalted his word above his name. He's magnified his word above his name. So it's not even a question of. It's never a matter of what God can do. It's what does the word say he will do. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry or wait for one another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you would not come together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. That's what these elements, the bread and the juice that we use, are to signify. They signify the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. As the scripture says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the bread represents his body, which was offered to us too. Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with his stripes, we are healed. With his stripes, we are healed. Do you realize just simple faith in Jesus fulfilling the Passover ritual to save us from death and to bring healing to our bodies? You can get healed just taking communion. And should. You don't need somebody to lay hands on you. Now there are some times where God directs things to be done that way and that's fine. Laying hands on the sick is one means whereby healing power is ministered to the sick. But it's not the only way. And the Bible says Paul identifies to us that one way that God has established is through partaking of the communion elements. I'll get that right in a minute. Communion elements. My M's get tied up there. Let's do that today. Amen. Gentlemen, would you come forward, please? Let's use this moment as the ushers are serving us to do exactly what it says. Let's examine ourselves. Let's make sure that we're expressing and using our faith. 
for what the Bible says Jesus did for us as signified by this Lord's Supper. He paid the price for your sin. So you are worthy by the blood of Jesus. But he offered his body to bring healing unto us. Amen. Amen. I'll read again from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. 
Paul said, For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Father, we take this bread. We thank you that Jesus offered his body for our physical healing. We thank you, Lord, just, just as you shed your blood for the forgiveness of sins. You offer your body for our physical healing. Father, we receive Jesus as our healer. We receive healing for this body of believers. From the top of our head to the soles of our feet. We declare through the taking of this bread. That the price for sickness and disease has already been paid. We declare we are healed. Let's receive the bread. After the same manner also he took the cup. When he had supped saying. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Thank God he's coming. Father, we receive this cup, which signifies and symbolizes the blood of the Lord Jesus that was spilled for us. Precious blood. That redeemed us from sin and sickness. Precious blood. That made us the righteousness of God in him. Precious blood. That brings us into your family. Lord we thank you. For paying the price. For our sin. And our sickness. In Jesus name. Let's receive the cup. Amen. Let's all stand. Let's close with a confession. Say this after me. By the blood of Jesus, I am redeemed. By the blood of Jesus, I am made righteous before God. By the body of the Lord Jesus, sickness has been paid for, and we are healed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great afternoon. Come back and be with us for Healing School tonight if you can. And you're dismissed.